Um, Bernie Sanders went on with uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton uh, on MSNBC the other day, which I thought, think is a good thing. Like Bernie is has to speak directly to the black community. Uh, Sharpton is pretty controversial in the black community. Uh, a lot of Black Lives Matter and you know progressive black activists don't like Al Sharpton, but uh, older black people, uh, specifically old, older women that I have met like Al Sharpton. So, you know, Bernie Sanders trying to reach as many African-Americans as he can because he cannot get crushed in South Carolina again. So here was uh, the takeaway, the standout moment from the interview he did with Al Sharpton, where Bernie's finally, finally speaking out on what status quo has been reporting for weeks. He's running for president while continuing to push for new legislation in the Senate. He has plenty of money and goodwill to draw upon after his run four years ago. But even with all that, he has a unique challenge this time around. In nearly every poll, he's near the top of the field of more than 20 Democratic candidates. Yet in nearly every early poll, He's trailing former Vice President Joe Biden and now in Sanders' neighboring state of New Hampshire. Polling shows Mr. Biden with a two-to-one advantage over the senator. And Mr. Biden went even further this week publicly predicting a short primary race. Joining me now on Politics Nation, Bernie Sanders. Thank you for joining us, Senator. Good to be with you, Al. But, uh, Senator, I want to get to your legislation that you and uh, Congresswoman or, uh, Ocasio-Cortez has proposed. But I have to ask you, uh, with New Hampshire's polling saying your neighboring state that Joe Biden is two to one ahead, is there a point where you start going after Joe Biden? Will you confront him in the debates? Will you confront him to show the difference between Biden and Bernie? Well, Al, if you look at that particular poll, uh, they had two-thirds of the people that they reached out to uh, were over the age of 50, and that's not the way uh, the people in New Hampshire vote. I think it was a selection of older people, which is not accurate. Bernie! Boom! Knock him out! Boom! Look at Sharpton's face. What? You talking about math? What? Al Sharpton, I used to work at MSNBC, so I could say this lovingly. I was on the ground. Uh, I was in the newsroom. Uh, the newsroom. I mean, I didn't know at the time. It was just total propaganda. I, I figured it out, but not right away. Uh, so I was there. I worked the night shift. So I had to listen to Al Sharpton when he had a nightly show, ranting and raving at the top of his lungs. Frankly, he can't read a teleprompter for dear life. Then I had to listen to Chris Hardball Matthews. I mean, literally, it is my grain city listening to this day after day. I digress. So, Bernie Sanders, finally. And again, you know, I, I, I don't have any intel, uh, and I'm not taking credit for it, but I did. I did. After I did that segment on CNN, th their poll is nothing but propaganda. I, I don't know what, what else to say. And remember, if you haven't hit the like button, press the like button. More people that press the like button, the more people that see it. So, you know, I think Bernie Sanders' campaign, at least in 2016, I recall, when I would push them, why aren't you speaking about, out about X or Y or Z, like election fraud or this and that? They, I would get back, well, you know, it's not going to make a difference and they'll paint us as being sore losers. So I was afraid he's not going to do it again. He's not going to speak up against, I mean, 
the polling, honestly, the, the way they're fudging these polls and oversampling old people and undersampling young people, it's kind of like superdelegates and lumping superdelegates with the pledge delegates and throwing that on the screen. We know CNN did that and MSNBC and even the New York Times. They would show their audiences, oh, look, Hillary Clinton's up by 800 total delegates, but they would put in the superdelegates. So the polling is kind of, to me, the new superdelegates because all of these polls that are considered Quinnipiac, CNN, um, uh, Morning Consult. There's a lot of these polls that it's just kind of baked into the cake as established practice that, well, you know, we just go by the voting trends of America and more older people vote than younger people. So they oversample older people. But it's a dishonest <laughs> thing to then put out a poll. And these polls, we see it. If you are like me, I do it for a living, so I have CNN on and MSNBC on. Eventually, status quo is going to be the alternative during the day. I was saying to Jen the other day, like, I wish there was a progressive channel on all day so I didn't have to watch this crap. That's what we're trying to become. Become a member. Statusquo.com slash join. I digress. But I was afraid Bernie wasn't going to speak out on this because they are basically, it's not straight up lying, but it's straight up uh, fudging when you make because how it goes is the polls are released at like 6 or 7 a.m. Then the morning shows pick it up. And then it's a narrative. You see, the police are coming for these pollsters. They're tired of these pollsters fudging the numbers, oversampling old people, undersampling young people, and then making it seem like Bernie Sanders is yesterday news and he's not going to win and he should drop out so we could, you know, uh, coalesce and um, solidify around someone like Joe Biden. So... Bernie Sanders, for this specific poll that he called out on Al Sharpton's program, it's a New Hampshire poll, and it's Monmouth University. And this poll by Monmouth University found that Joe Biden, that Joe Biden was up uh, in a field of 24 announced and potential candidates. Biden holds a clear lead with 36% to Bernie Sanders, 18%. So... This Monmouth University poll found that Bernie Sanders is down by 18 points in New Hampshire, which he crushed Hillary Clinton in in 2016. So does that make sense to you that Bernie Sanders would be down by 18 points in New Hampshire? He might be down a little bit at this point, but 18 points? Well, then you got to look into the numbers, which none of the news article I read. The Hill.com, The Washington Post, CNN, that pick up these polls, not one mentions what I'm about to show you and which Bernie Sanders called out. Here we go. Look at the age breakdown of this poll. And credit, I, I do have to give Monmouth University credit for at least putting it in there. I mean, it's not in the news articles, but if you actually like Google Monmouth polling, you could find it. But they actually put it in the poll, the age breakdown, which CNN, for the most part, and a lot of other polls I've read, don't actually give you this detailed information. So at least credit to Monmouth for transparency. But when you look at the demographics, 15% polled are aged 18 to 34, Bernie Sanders' strongest demographic. 18% polled 35 to 49. As Bernie Sanders' first three months in uh, donors, will show you. Predominantly, Bernie Sanders' top donor was under age 40 uh, the first three months of this 
uh, year where he made $18.2 million uh, leading the pack in those first three months. So you got 15% age 18 to 34. You with me? You got 18% age 35 to 49. Ooh, well, what do you know? 33% were age 50 to 64. 34% age 65 and over. Well, well, well. Well, I will be honest. I did fail math in 11th grade. I had to redo it over summer school. But I could do this on the calculator. So let's do it quick, folks. We got 33 plus 34. What does that come out to? 33 plus 34. That's 67% of those polled were over the age of 50 in this New Hampshire poll. But the... Narrative, narrative, let me just find an article. New Hampshire, Joe Biden poll. Oh, Business Insider. The latest, the latest 2020 primary polling has nothing but bad news for Bernie Sanders about the New Hampshire poll. Let's find the other ones. The Hill, Biden doubling up Sanders in New Hampshire. So, I mean, you're getting the point here. Does it say anything in here about 67% of those polled were over the age of 50? What do you think? You know, again, I want to be clear to our audience here. And I'm going to put the numbers up one more time so you have it. I understand that a lot of you are over the age of 50. So this isn't about whether there are no older progressives that support Bernie Sanders. There are indeed plenty of older progressives over the age of 50 that support Bernie Sanders. But I'm reporting to you data. I'm reporting to you the numbers uh, and the trends. So it's not a knock on older progressives. There are older progressives. Bernie Sanders has a lot of older supporters. But the, the majority of those over the age of 50, by the history of the Democratic Party and the history of presidential politics and congressional, by the way, tend to vote for establishment, more you know, center-right, moderate to right-wing Republican. I'm talking uh, right-wing Democrats, Nancy Pelosi's of the world, Joe Biden's of the world, Dick Durbin's, um, Steady Hoyer's, you know, Barack Obama. You get the point. Although uh, Obama hoodwinked a lot of people under 40, including me, that he was a progressive when obviously he didn't legislate that way. So what you have here, this poll, I will call this poll what it is, is a lie. To say that Joe Biden is beating Bernie Sanders by 18 points in basically Bernie Sanders' backyard, New Hampshire is right next to Vermont, you are intentionally, as a pollster, Monmouth, you are intentionally lying because you, you're basically, you're not actually getting a true representation of support in New Hampshire. You're getting a representation of what you are looking for. You are looking for more old, more older voters. And you are not looking for more younger voters. If you would have done a more equal distribution where you have maybe 35% over 50, 34, 33%, under 40. Yeah, Joe Biden might be up a little bit, but he ain't going to be up 18 points. And this is why, again, I'm not a polling truther. I will acknowledge that I think Joe Biden is beating Bernie Sanders across the board in most of the polls. I don't think Joe Biden is beating Bernie Sanders by some polls, 25 points, other polls, 
I, I saw one poll that was almost 30 points. It just doesn't make sense. It does make sense that Joe Biden would be up. He just announced. So he has the post announcement bump. And frankly, he's the former vice president and he's hugging Barack Obama for dear life. Even though Obama didn't endorse him, Obama let him use uh, in one of his videos, Obama's voice uh, narrating how great Joe Biden is. I think that's going to come back to bite Obama in the ass uh, later on. But I want to get to another point. Bernie Sanders actually speaking up on this is, is good. It's positive. But we need to hear more. I mean, he has a pretty professional campaign this time around. We need to see messaging on the fact that these polls are oversampling older people and undersampling young people. I mean, when you have story after story, segment after segment saying Joe Biden, I mean, why is Bernie even running? Can't even, can't even compete in his backyard of New Hampshire when, I mean, they're cooking the polls. I mean, this is cooking the polls to give you the answer that you want. When you poll, when 67% of those polled are over the age of 50, that's not a poll. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a farce. That's not an actual statistical representation of how New Hampshire votes, which is what Bernie Sanders said. So then you have people criticizing me on the Twitter when I do segments like this saying, oh, the Bernie bros, now they don't believe math, now they don't believe data. Uh, no, I believe common sense. More young people voted in 2016 than ever before in this country. 2018 had record numbers of young people voting in the midterms. Midterms are generally where you see young voting totally deflate and not a lot of young people vote in midterm elections. So you're seeing more and more young people vote. You're seeing more and more young people politically activated. You see news article after news article about how millennials are more into politics and politics is a bigger, uh, I, I read an article that politics and political preferences are more important to millennials than good sex. How about that? So Good step in the right direction, and I would hope to see more from Bernie Sanders about this. I would hope to see more from his campaign about this. It's not being a sore loser to, to speak out on deception. It's calling it like it is and keeping it real. So after they played that clip, they had on a Democratic strategist. Always beware when you hear Democrat, Democratic strategist and a Republican strategist. So who, you know, I'm, I'm watching it, and I'm just thinking to myself, and they had them on to react and then to explore the feasibility of whether Medicare for all will catch on and whether, you know, the primary electorate will decide Medicare for all is feasible. So shockingly, the Democratic strategist didn't think so. Shockingly, the Republican strategist didn't think so. So then I Google relatively quickly, who's the Democratic strategist? Who's the Republican strategist? And what do you know? One's a lobbyist for the healthcare industry. The other one's a public relations director for a swampy, swampy DC PR firm that, whose clients are the big banks and all these corporate clients that love deregulation, don't want the big banks uh, broken up. And the big banks, by the way, this is never talked about, but the big banks love, love, love the private health insurance company. Hate, hate, hate Medicare for all because the big banks are heavily invested in big pharma. It's all one big sloppy, corrupt, revolving door. And that's the police coming for them. That's the sirens. So let me play you this clip uh, from this segment. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about who were these Democratic strategists who doesn't think Medicare for all is feasible and the Republican strategists who 
just, you know, it's a pipe dream. Here we go. One has to get over the sticker shock, uh, which is about a $32 tr trillion program over 10 years. So there's a cost issue. Uh, there's a disruption of coverage. Uh, and also, I think many Democrats recognize that Medicare for all is really a distraction. They know it's not going to be enacted. And so, and that distracts them from dealing with uh, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, where we all can acknowledge there are problems and it needs to be shored up. So the serious Democrats are trying to figure out ways uh, to stabilize that program, which, you know, whether you like Obamacare or not, it did provide additional access to many people. So they should try to fix uh, the program that they've already established. Because uh, it's Medicare for all, by the way, it will not eliminate private insurance. Uh, you know, 35% of people in Medicare today get their uh, their uh, Medicare through Medicare Advantage, a private uh, health care option. And of the 65% in fee-for-service Medicare, 40% of them have Medigap or supplemental plans that's private insurance to pay for what Medicare does not. So I think Democrats are going down the wrong hole, wrong, wrong path on uh, on Medicare for all. And similarly, this is what a former Democratic Senator Heidi Heidekamp, you know, said when she penned an op-ed urging, you know, Democrats not to back Medicare for all and instead, you know, build up the Affordable uh, Care Act. She wrote specifically, when I see some potential Democratic nominees expressing their support for Medicare for all, which would cast aside the ACA and start all over again with a single government-run health care program into which every American would be enrolled, I worry that the candidates are playing directly into the hands of Trump. Molly, a good point. No, I think, no, it is definitely a good point. I think what we need to do is stay focused on talking about health care costs and whether or not the, the, the uh, people running for president want to talk about Medicare for all or not, you really need to talk about health care costs. That's what we saw in the midterm, right? So lowering prescription drug prices, protecting people with pre-existing conditions. That's what voters care about. I think they care a lot less about labels and whoever wins the nomination will just have defined the debate on that. They have at the bottom of the screen that he works for DLA Piper, uh, which is a lobbying firm. And it's known for being a swampy, gross, corrupt, evil, greedy, motherfucking lobbying firm. So this is from, um, I mean, it's, it's not hard to find this. Unfortunately, we don't have any reporters in this country that actually look. So... This is from uh, just a quick Google search, bizjournals, bizjournal.com. Uh, DLA Piper. The Washington Post reports three of DLA Piper's healthcare lobbyists have left to form Serona Strategies, a new healthcare consulting group that will specialize in healthcare business policy, regulatory, legislative, and communications strategy. The founders include Krista, Dobak, Krista Drobach, Kristen Ratcliffe, and Vanessa Kramer. The firm, which takes its name from the, Celt the, the Celtic goddess of health, will be independent, but will partner with Aiken Group's Aiken Grump's health policy team, the Post reports. So here you have DLA Piper healthcare lobbyists. They are healthcare lobbyists. And who do they lobby for? Take a guess. Just take a guess. Drobach and Ratcliffe, these were the, these were the lobbyists that were leaving DLA Piper. Uh, Drawback and Ratcliffe have represented health insurers and pharmaceutical companies, including Aetna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Pfizer, and the Alliance for Connected Care, a group of pharmacies and healthcare companies lobbying for greater access to telemedicine services. So, Aetna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Pfizer, you get the you get the drill here, folks. So CNN to 
I don't know what you would call that, debate, reflect, examine whether Medicare for all is feasible as a Republican healthcare lobbyist who whose firm actively lobbies for the healthcare industry, including Aetna and other big pharma companies, insurers. But I mean, that's, that's not surprising that a Republican would be against for Medicare for all, but how can you ethically, I'm talking to you, CNN, how could you ethically have a Republican on uh, who's, how could he actually credibly or even objectively assess whether Medicare for all is feasible in the Democratic primary or America when his very earning, his very making a living is based on making sure Medicare for all never happens. Would you call that a conflict of interest? Would you call that dishonest to your audience? Would you call that propaganda? But that's not it. So, and by the way, I don't know the Republican. I'm sure he's just your average, you know, card carrying, Second Amendment toting idiot Republican. But then you have this nice woman. Uh, I don't, I don't have anything against her. Molly Mitchell. A quick Google search. She's, she's the director of Hamilton Place Strategies. Hamilton Place Strategies, which is a big PR firm. Now, what does this PR firm do? This is an article from the Intercept. Do 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 do. Hamilton Place, Hamilton Place is most widely known for going to bat for Wall Street. Shocker. Major trade associations and big banks uh, are, are some of the firm's largest clients. Fratto, who is a Treasury Department spokesperson under George W. Bush, and this, this is Tony Fratto, who founded uh, Hamilton Place Strategies, uh, frequently pops up in financial regulation-related stories, scoffing at the need for new rules on the big banks. In 2016, Fratto was one of the biggest opponents of the 21st century Glass-Steagall Act, which would have imposed a firewall separating investment banks that engage in trading activity from the commercial banks that take deposits. Fratto has also has been one of the most consistent backers of the Export-Import Bank, which facilitates cheap loans for foreign deals with U.S. multinationals. Hamilton Place created exporters from Exime, an ad hoc group of companies seeking to turn the cheap lending spigot back on. In 2013, Hamilton Place released a report called Banking on Our Future, the value of big banks in a global economy. Oh my God, I want to vomit. I want to vomit. A more recent report in July 2017 pronounced big banks safe and sound. Yeah, until, until the student loan bubble burst, which is coming up, folks. In short, Hamilton Place is a full-service support staff for Wall Street banks, parroting their arguments at every turn for years. And now, one of the partners is doing communication for a possible presidential candidate. This article was on somebody from that firm uh, working for Howard Schultz's totally, you know, momentous, scorching hot, so popular presidential campaign. You know, Howard Schultz. Which, by the way, I had... Uh, a s'mores frappuccino the other day because I was feeling a little bougie. It was delicious. I'm not going to lie. So thank you, Howard, for overpriced, really bad for you frappuccino. I shouldn't be having it. It's very bad for me, but I like them. So you have this director for um, Hamilton Place on to talk about the feasibility for 
Medicare for all. Well, look in the fine print, okay? Hamilton Place is basically a PR firm that bends over and gives figurative favors for big banks. Well, what do you, do you know many big banks that are rallying for Medicare for all? Why do you think big banks don't want Medicare for all? Well, big, bank, big banks have a lot of investors. And what are those investors invested in? Uh, a lot of fossil fuel companies, a lot of tech startups, a lot of real estate projects, and a lot of pharmaceutical companies and healthcare companies. And those pharmaceutical companies and those healthcare companies exist not to provide you good healthcare, not to make sure that you could get, you know, healthcare for, uh, you know, uh, pre-existing conditions, mental health issues, dental, vision, hearing, uh, catastrophe coverage, you name it. They're not actually in the business of making sure you get the health care you need or get the preventative care you need. They're in the business of making sure they could deprive you of that so they could maximize profit. So that's what the big banks are invested in. And that's also the big banks are all invested in these fossil fuel projects. Projects like the pipelines, Dakota Access, Keystone, Rover, Transpecos, uh, Atlantic Coast, Mountain Valley, and on and on we go. You might not see, you know, it might not be mentioned in the article, oh, Hamilton Place is, they're all for the banks. Well, the banks are very much against Medicare for all because that would squeeze investment money and profit maximization. So CNN, and I tweeted about this early, not to toot my own horn, but I'll just read you my own tweet. CNN, this is how CNN propaganda works. Toss a GOP lobbyist, in this case, Charlie Dent, whose firm lobbied for Aetna Blue Cross. Toss him with a Democrat PR director, Molly Mitchell, whose firm loves banks, big banks, all invested in big pharmaceutical companies. Step two, don't disclose it. Why bother disclosing their conflicts of interest, their financial motives to go on CNN for the next two and a half minutes and pretend Medicare for all? It's just not feasible. Of course it's not feasible. You know, 70% of American wants, Americans want it. 80-something percent of the Democratic Party polled want it. 52% of Republicans polled want it. But, of course, you know, it's just not feasible. And then have the duo discuss the feasibility of Medicare for all. So this is why it's, it's not just the polls that are screwed, screwed. It's not just the polls that are concocted. It's not just the poll numbers that they're, they're fudging. It's everything. Everything. And this is a big reason, by the way, this is a big reason why I started Status Quo in the first place. Not just to, we try to do two things, two big things with very limited staff, help us, help us grow, statusquo.com. Uh, we're, we're not just in business to get out in the field and cover the stories that no one else is covering. That is a huge part of what we do. But we're also in business to expose the corporate media. And some of you might say, well, we already know this, so why bother? Because not everyone does. And the more you expose this, the more it gets out. The more people, the more CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the more exposure of the deception they're putting out there, the propaganda they're putting out there, the wildly out of context polls and segments like that, where at the very least, the anchor should be saying, the Democratic strategist, her, her firm 
uh, does business with big banks who have investments in the health insurance industry. The Republican strategist is a lobbyist whose firm lobbies for these healthcare companies. So at least the viewer knows, hey, these two, they're in the bag for the corrupt, greedy insurance companies and health insurance companies. So maybe I should take this with a grain of salt. Maybe what I'm getting isn't accurate. And then you have to ask, well, why is CNN? You know, is there no advocates of Medicare for All available on a Sunday to go on national television? On, on the Democrat side, we know the Republican. Yeah, get somebody who's against Medicare for All if you need to have both sides. But is there nobody available? Because I know a lot of reputable people with large followings that are for Medicare for All, know the numbers, know the, know the data, know the trends, know it all, who would be available. But CNN doesn't seem interested in having those people. Could, you know, could I do a segment? Could I do this non-live stream without calling out Joe Biden's just, I mean, he must really be so arrogant that he knows, oh boy, I mean, is there a, is there a freaking Hall of Fame Rolodex and archive uh, of corrupt, racist, awful things I've said and just say, say well, it's not going to matter. I got the money. I got the special interest and old people don't care. So whatever. So this clip uh, came out a couple days ago, uh, and Justice Democrats, I think, put it out. And here's Joe Biden uh, just openly talking about being, you know, if you give him 250000 he'll give you the world. Here we go. Lobbyists aren't bad people. Special interest groups are not bad people. But guess what? They're corrosive. People who accept the money from them aren't bad people, but it's human nature. You go out, Lynn, and bundle $250,000 for me, all legal, and then you call me after I'm elected and say, Joe, I'd like to come and talk to you about something. You didn't buy me, but it's human nature. You helped me. I'm going to say, sure, Lynn, come on in. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You didn't buy me, Lynn. You, didn't, you, you helped me raise $250,000. You didn't buy me. But sure, come on in. So if that if he's saying that he wasn't bought by the person who helped raise $250,000 for him, he must say, you, he, he rented me. He rented me. I can't be bought, but I can be rented or financed or layaway. You get my point? Too harsh? I mean, the walking contradictions of this man. And I'm going to be honest with you, and some people aren't going to like what I'm about to say, but I really am starting to feel it. I think Joe Biden's worse than Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's really comparing like rotten apples to rotten oranges. But there's just such a much, there's a much, much longer record. You know, Hillary Clinton was only in the Senate for eight, seven years. Joe Biden was in the Senate for two decades, I believe. And Joe Biden was in public life. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, starting in the late 1970s, early 80s. I mean, she was just a lawyer. So she has a terrible record, and, and there's a lot of bad things about her dating back to the 70s. But I'm talking about a political record. He's got a much longer record than Hillary Clinton. Um, I don't think – I mean, I, he's also a warmonger too. I think she has him by a couple miles on the warmongering, but he's still a warmonger. But, I mean, the more you see this – video of him 
He's openly talking about being bought. What he's talking about is being bought. If, if you help raise a lot of money for me, if you help raise a lot of money for me, uh, yeah, come on in. You'll have my ear. So here's the difference, okay? So status quo, we're, we're a company. We're not like a charity. We're a company. So we don't, you know, we're raising, we're raising money from viewers, right? So there was a, there was a, a viewer who gave $5,000 to our GoFundMe. That viewer chose to be anonymous, so I never said who it was. But I reached out to that viewer uh, after he gave $5,000 to try and get him on the phone. Because A, I wanted to personally thank him. That's an incredible amount of money to give to, to a media startup. He, he, I, I was just curious, like, what made you do it? What kind of stuff do we do that makes you that dedicated and passionate about status quo? Uh, I, I wanted to know because it's, it's good to know what's registering with the people. Um, not for my ego, but to know what should we do more of, obviously, if somebody's willing to give that much money. Uh, I was never, never able to get in touch with him. But the, the difference is, if that viewer is giving $5,000 to us, you're damn right I want to talk to him. I'm open to a story or two he's interested in us covering, or she, if it was a woman. I'm not going to like be on the road and covering a story, and then that person calls me and say, hey, Lee Flint, I want you to do this. No, no, I'm not talking about that. They're not going to set our editorial um, decisions. But if somebody's going to give us $5,000 and help us grow, of course I'd be open to if they are interested in us covering a story or this and that. Um, but that's, that's a, that's a media company. You know what I mean? And that's from a viewer. We're not talking about from Goldman Sachs. We're not talking about from big pharma. We're not talking about Silicon Valley. We're not talking about real estate developers. We're not talking about the big banks. You're talking about from an actual viewer. So yes, if a viewer gives $5,000 to us, I am open to you know, if you have a story suggestion or this and that, I would always say I can't guarantee anything and, and I'm not, I would never ever let viewers uh, or even investors like dictate our day to day. But this is okay for a company funded by the people. When you're a politician and you're openly saying, well, if you help raise 500, if you help us raise $250 and you know, you want to run something by me, hey, come on in, open door policy. Do you think whatever that person wants to run by Joe Biden is just some innocent, like, I'd like to know your thoughts about planting a tree in Israel. Of course not. They want something from Joe Biden. You want to know something? He's going to give it to them so he could get their money for the next election and the next pet project. That's how it works. And he just openly told you so. So Joe Biden's corrupt. And he could say, in, you know, in one breath, he didn't buy me, but yeah, yeah, I'm open to him coming in. Well, what do you call that? Of course it's being bought. But I'd rather be bought by actual people that are funding us, viewers, than special interests or wealthy plutocrats. Yeah, you could buy me, the viewers. I'm only open to what the viewers want and think. And a viewer could give me a hell of a lot of money. And if they want me to cover something that doesn't really align with our values or doesn't really fit our wheelhouse, then I'm going to respectfully say, yeah, I'll look into it. But I'm not going to guarantee you that I'm actually going to do something on it. So, I mean, that's the deal.
Joe Biden's corrupt. So uh, Joe Biden in New Hampshire today, fresh off his fake 18-point lead, if you were watching earlier, uh, Joe Biden uh, really, really uh, did a bang-up job of dressing up his role and the actual effects of the crime bill. So this is Joe Biden today in New Hampshire on the crime bill. Some of you old enough, I got made fun of because they said Biden's spending money not fighting crime on prevention. And they had these ads of people dancing in tutus, these big guys. Remember, that's all Biden, midnight basketball, all that stuff. Second piece of it was a significant investment in dealing with rational gun policy without violating the Second Amendment. We eliminated assault weapons. We were in a position where we limited the number of um, bullets that could be in the magazine, the background checks that hadn't occurred before, etc. And the third thing was the Violence Against Women Act. And, but in the process of that, we also set up drug courts so that we could divert people. They should be in treatment, not in jail. In treatment, not in jail. And, uh, secondly, secondly, we should be in a position where we invest a great deal more, not only in the research to be able to get better meds to deal with you, and your, or, or, or whatever that problem is, but we should be engaging in a way where we invest the community and be able to have the resources to provide for this treatment and prevention positions. And I can lay out, if you if give me a name, I'll send you, I'll lay out for you exactly what all that means and how you do it programmatically. But I am so proud of you. Wow. That sounds a lot different. That sounds a lot different than Senator Joe Biden who is drafting the crime bill. Here's Senator Joe Biden in 1993. See if you feel a little, see if you detect a little difference in tone. Take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become a uh, uh, social uh, become socialized into the fabric of society it doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society the end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe shoot my sister beat up my wife take on my sons so i don't want to ask what made them do this they must be taken off the street that's number one. There's a consensus on that. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally, I give myself three more minutes, because they literally have not been socialized they literally have not had an opportunity. We should focus on them now. If we don't, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. And Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created. Again, it does not mean because we created them that we somehow forgive them or do not take them out of society to protect my family and yours from them. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Beyond the pale. 
and it's a sad commentary on society. We have no choice but to take them out of society. And the truth is, we don't very well know how to rehabilitate them at that point. That's the sad truth. I'm the guy that said rehabilitation, when it occurs, we don't understand it, notice it. And when we, even when we notice it and we know it occurs, we don't know why. So you cannot make rehabilitation a condition for release. That's why in our system, there's the federal system, you serve 85% of your time. It's a shame, but we don't know how to rehabilitate. But there is a consensus, and I will cease. A, we must make the streets safer. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. I don't care why someone is antisocial. I don't care why they become a sociopath. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them, try to change the behavior. That's why we do in this bill. We have drug treatment and we have other treatments to try to deal with it. But they are in jail. Away from my mother, your husband, our families. But we would be being... They are in jail. Stupid as a society. They are in jail. Away from my mother. And happy Mother's Day, by the way. Belated Mother's Day. To all the brave and wonderful mothers in our audience. And see the police, they're coming for Biden. They're coming for Biden. The past of Joe Biden is coming. And the police are coming for Joe Biden. To, to give him a high five because they are racist like that too. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, when I was at the Young Turks, they used to do headlines like Extreme Makeover, Hillary Clinton edition. It's now Extreme Makeover, Joe Biden. Extreme makeover Joe Biden edition. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You know, he's in New Hampshire now, the elder statesman, talking very soft, you know, about the good parts about the crime bill. When, you know, in 1993, you know, Senator Joe Biden drafting the crime bill, you know, throw him in, throw him in the cell, light a fire, and make some s'mores out of him. That's essentially what he was saying back then. And remember... This isn't the only awful thing Joe Biden has said. This one wasn't on tape. Joe Biden about desegregation and, you know, making amends to African-Americans. When Joe Biden was a freshman in the mid-1970s, Senator, his home state of Delaware, like other hotspots across the country, was engulfed in a bitter battle over school busing, debating whether children should be sent to schools in different neighborhoods to promote racial diversity. Biden took a lead role in the fight, speaking out repeatedly and forcefully against sending white children to majority black schools and black children to majority white schools. He played down the persistence of overt racism and suggested that the government should have a limited role in the integration. Quote, I do not buy the concept popular in the 60s, which said we have suppressed the black man for 300 years and the white man is now far ahead in the race for everything our society offers. In order to even the score, we must now give the black man a head start or even hold the white man back to even the race, Biden told a Delaware-based weekly newspaper in 1975. I don't buy that. To eat, to, <laughs> to even the race? How about just allow the black man or, and woman to to start the race at the same level, at the same point.
And you want to know something, folks? Straight up, and this is a controversial thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's a certain percentage of older African-American voters who vote Democratic Party, the establishment Democrat, no matter what, that are not going to, that are, that are going to hear these things and are going to look the other way. Or CNN and the corporate media will have successfully, you know, manufactured consent that Biden's the only one that could be Trump. And as a result, those older African-American voters say, you know what, we don't like some of the things he said, but we got to be Trump and he's who could beat him, which, as I've reported and I've shown you, is complete BS. Bernie Sanders has the strongest chance against Trump, specifically in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, which I believe the next president will win based on those states, again, like Trump was victorious in 2016. But, I mean, the hits are going to keep going because there are journalists right now, and I know some of them, that are actively going back in the, in the 80s and 90s in, of Joe Biden's old C-SPAN speeches and doing that treacherous work of going back to find clips like that of Joe Biden basically sounding like a country club Klansman. Because it, it's not like, it, it's, it, it goes beyond white privilege. It's racist. His policies, specifically the crime bill, are racist. So, is, so was welfare reform, which he championed. The repeal of Glass-Steagall, which led to the housing global financial crash in 2008, disproportionately victimized black Americans. So whatever way you want to slice it, and CNN's not going to tell the truth on this, and MSNBC's not going to tell the truth on it, the New York Times is not going to tell the truth on it, Washington Post certainly isn't, it's up to Bernie and the other candidates to a lesser degree to set the record straight and say, you know, Joe Biden, you could say what you want now and you could hug Obama and the fact that you were his vice president for dear life, but your policies were racist and your rhetoric was racist. And I think Bernie Sanders needs to be forceful. As forceful as he is calling Donald Trump a racist, if he doesn't want to call Joe Biden a, race, Joe Biden a racist, that's up to him. But he needs to clearly, clearly talk about how Joe Biden's policies as a senator and the policies he favored as a vice president harm black people. And it's not racist dog whistling, it's the truth. 